Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Stay connected and never miss a beat with AT&T. Our reliable network covers more roads than any other carrier, ensuring you're always in the loop. Whether it's tournament upsets, buzzer beaters, or social media buzz, stay up to date. Don't let the action pass you by. Check if you're eligible for a free trial of in-car Wi-Fi at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. And keep the madness going. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. <laughs> Lessons from the world's top professors, anytime, anyplace. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. And we're back on the untold history of sports in America. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. Today, we revisit a classic and timeless sports mythology, the Great White Hope. It's been a few decades. It's about time we had another one. This time around, it's Larry Bird, the hick from French Lick. His NBA rivalry with Magic Johnson saved the league and revived the great American pastime of rooting for the white guy to beat all the black athletes. USA! USA! Here's Matt with more. One of my childhood heroes was someone who, yes, I know, wasn't real. As a kid, I went to the movies and I was in trance with a gritty, working-class, Italian-American boxer from Philadelphia, the Italian Stallion, Rocky Balboa. The first Rocky film came out in 1976, America's 200th birthday, and it was awarded the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1977. And Rocky Balboa became one of the cultural icons of the era. He's definitely the most famous sports character in American movie history. The film Rocky struck a chord with Americans. And on the one hand, why not? It's the classic underdog story. The tale of a down-on-his-luck, seemingly washed-up pugilist, his boxing career just hanging by a thread. But then Rocky gets his big break. In a publicity stunt, the heavyweight champion of the world, Apollo Creed. and What a name. Apollo Creed. He gives this no-name fighter a chance. In America's bicentennial, Rocky Balboa is given the opportunity to fight for the title and seize the American dream. But here's what I now understand about Rocky. Rocky is not just a sports film. Rocky is a movie about race and American history. Sitting in the movie theater in 1976 and watching Rocky and then 
going back and seeing Rocky two, three years later, and then Rocky three, three years after that. I thought I was watching a film about the underdog who gets the girl and wins the big fight. But what I now realize about these early Rocky films is that they are not realistic depictions of the boxing world or, or, or gritty urban American life. These films are actually a fantasy. The Rocky films are white America's revenge fantasy against Muhammad Ali. This lecture is titled The Return of the Great White Hope. And I am going to tell you the story of three white athletes from the 1980s, Larry Bird, Jerry Cooney, and Rocky Balboa, two boxers and a basketball player, two real athletes and one fictitious character. All three competed in sports that in the 1980s were being dominated by black Americans. You know, a lot of what we've been talking about in our course is how black athletes have been significant racial symbols, Joe Lewis and Jackie Robinson and, and Wilma Rudolph symbolizing the promise of integration. Muhammad Ali as the embodiment of black power. Historically speaking, this has been both the power of the black athlete, but also the burden of the black athlete. The black athlete always seemed to be representing more than just him or herself. Well, now in the 1980s, the script was flipped. Now it was white athletes like Larry Bird and Jerry Cooney and Rocky Balboa who came to represent something bigger than themselves. They came to represent white excellence in the black world of sport. And more than that, as I'm going to argue, they came to represent a white ideal that many thought was losing ground in society at large. And so many white Americans rooted for these three white athletes with uncommon passion. For many white Americans, these white athletes, real and fictional, they were their great white hopes. Okay, what was going on in America that caused many white Americans to invest so heavily in these athletes? Well, this takes us to the phenomenon of a white backlash to the civil rights and black power movements. For two decades, the civil rights and black power movements, they had been gaining steam. You know, beginning in the 1950s, black Americans started to score some major civil rights victories. They dramatically protested Jim Crow and the culture of racism. It's something we explored when we discussed Tommy Smith and John Carlos in 1968. Well, by the 1970s, there were many white Americans who felt as if they had become victims of this civil rights surge. There was a growing belief among some white Americans that the nation was overly fixated on the problems facing black Americans and not the problems that they were facing. One problem here was that everyone's status was sliding in the 1970s. This was a decade that saw a steep economic downturn in the United States. And this was due to a number of factors. There was the, the high cost of the Vietnam War, the rising price of oil coming out of the Middle East. The fact that American companies were sending their jobs overseas. But rather than look at and blame these complicated global factors, many white Americans blame their sliding economic status on, on people of color. You know, their status seems to be going up while mine is going down. It's their fault. Affirmative action policies were very much part of this calculus. 
Beginning in 1965, federal and state governments began implementing affirmative action. And the idea here was that in order to combat the legacy of racism and Jim Crow segregation, schools needed to take affirmative action and admit more applicants of color. The government needed to take affirmative action and award contracts to Black-owned businesses. Well, without a doubt, many white Americans saw affirmative action as the opposite. They saw it as a total negative. As they saw it, now they were being victimized by the government. They were being treated unfairly. Affirmative action, they said, was just another term for reverse racism. If there was one arena in American life where African-American gains were most obvious at this time, it was in the world of sports. There's no doubt about it. The sporting world was becoming blacker. We have been charting that transformation in this course. And more and more, the white athlete was in the minority. And this was especially true in one sport in particular, basketball, and in one sports league in particular, the NBA. The NBA was created in 1946, and it was an all-white league until 1950, when Earl Lloyd debuted for the Washington Capitals. So in 1950, the NBA was desegregated. And by the mid-1960s, half of the players in the NBA were African-American, and most of the league's stars were Black. And some NBA insiders thought that this was a problem. We have discussed this in this course. People like to see representations of themselves on the field of play, you know, in the boxing ring, on the baseball diamond, on the basketball court. And so for many Americans who thought of themselves as white, professional basketball was no longer providing that opportunity, especially in the 1970s. By the end of the 1970s, three out of every four players in the NBA were African-American. And here's the result. Here is the indisputable truth about the NBA at this time. In the 1970s, the NBA was not popular with white Americans. One basketball historian calls the 1970s in the NBA, he calls it the dark ages of the league. And this is both a reference to the league's unpopularity and it's a reference to race. The perception among many was that the league was too black. White Americans were losing interest. And then came two basketball players, one white and one black, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. You you can't really talk about Larry Bird without talking about Magic. The standard line when talking about these two is to say that the NBA was going to die had it not been for Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. But that is an overstatement. The NBA would have figured out how to make their league work eventually. But what is remarkable here is that Magic and Bird entered the league in 1979 and they transformed the NBA almost immediately. The NBA soared in popularity in the 1980s and it was almost entirely because of Magic and Bird. Magic Johnson, a brilliant, immensely charismatic black basketball player. Larry Bird, a brilliant white basketball player. This was the winning combination that helped the NBA overcome its so-called blackness problem. And there's a definite paradox here. A sport or a league that is seen as quote-unquote too black is seen by many as a problem. 
but a league that can be fueled by white versus black competitions. Well, that sells in American sports. We have talked about it. The evidence is overwhelming. Whether it's the Jack Johnson, Jim Jeffries fight, or that horse race between Isaac Murphy and Snapper Garrison, or the fact that Jackie Robinson's first season in the major leagues was the year that saw the most patrons ever at Ebbets Field. Race-based rivalries and tensions in sports intrigue and excite American sports fans. Magic and Bird first faced each other in the NCAA championship game in 1979, when Magic's Michigan State Spartans, they defeated Larry Bird's Indiana State Sycamores. This is the game that made the NCAA tournament the popular sporting spectacle that it is today. In fact, to this day, that 1979 game is still the highest rated game in the history of televised college basketball. And people tuned in because it was a game between two superstars, one white and one black. After this 1979 game, these two players, players who were already seen as opposites, they then entered the NBA on opposite coast. Magic went to Los Angeles, Bird went to Boston. Larry Bird had actually been drafted a full year earlier in 1978 by the Boston Celtics, even though he had made it clear he was returning to Indiana State for his senior year of college. The Celtics said, that's okay, we're willing to wait. And a lot of people thought that it was no coincidence that the Boston Celtics would use a draft pick and wait a full year for a great white player. They said, this just seems to fit with the racial outlook of the city. So now here's where all of the stories, all of the things I've been talking about come together. Let's talk about Boston and white backlash for a moment. In the late 1970s, it was Boston that was the city most associated with the white backlash I began with. And in Boston, the trigger issue was busing. In the 1970s, the federal courts were trying to desegregate public schools. The courts were ordering that black students from segregated neighborhoods be bused to white neighborhood schools in order to achieve or, or engineer racial integration. And these policies sparked intense and, and sometimes violent opposition. And it was Boston with its white Irish Catholic neighborhoods. They were often the center of that opposition. As buses carrying black students rolled into these white neighborhoods, white students and parents, they stood their ground. They, they resisted. They met these buses and they threw rocks. They threw bananas. They yelled racial slurs and held up signs, bus them back to Africa. These white Bostonians did not want these black children coming into their neighborhoods. These were their schools and they wanted the black children kept out. Whites have rights too, they said. I think that's one of the more striking aspects of this white backlash movement, the way that the protesters used the rhetoric of the civil rights movement. You know, what about our rights? Everyone is getting special treatment and attention except us. We've been left behind. Whites have rights too. Look, it, this wasn't just happening in Boston. I mean, it very famously was happening in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was happening in many cities. But Boston seemed to be where the attitudes were most ferocious. 
And so into Boston, the city that was seething with racial conflict and white backlash in the 1970s, here comes that great white basketball player, Larry Bird. And Larry Bird immediately turned the Celtics into winners. The Celtics won 29 games the year before without Larry Bird. Bird arrives in 1979 and they win 61. It's a remarkable turnaround. Larry Bird was voted the 1980 Rookie of the Year in the NBA, and he led the Celtics all the way to the Eastern Conference Finals. It's actually Magic Johnson and the Lakers who won the title that year. But the next year, 1981, it was Bird's turn, and he led the Celtics to the championship. And that was the NBA in the 1980s. Bird and Magic, the Celtics and the Lakers. And as many saw it, and as sports writers wrote about it, White versus black. How good were these two? Well, Magic and Bird, they were each voted the MVP of the league three times. Bird Celtics, they were in the NBA Finals five times. They won three. Magic's Lakers were there eight times and won five. From a basketball standpoint, we can have an argument over who was the better player. Uh, I say it was Magic, but that's a fun, though not terribly important argument. But let me make the case that from the perspective as an an American sport historian, Larry Bird is the more historically significant player. And that's because Larry Bird was the racial outlier. He was a white man excelling in that black game. Larry Bird was the perfect sports hero for white Americans who felt like they were being ignored and, and, and looked down upon for those who felt like black Americans were gaining at their expense. And I want to be very clear here. I once had a student in in one of my classes raise his hand and ask me, Dr. Andrews, are you saying that if you root for Larry Bird and the Celtics that you're a racist? And the answer is emphatically no. I'm, I'm not saying that. That would be cheap and easy and uncomplicated. I know this. People root for teams and athletes for all sorts of reasons. But I am saying that the national fervor for Larry Bird, this this great white star in a black league, that fervor was partially fueled by the feelings that many white Americans had that they were unfairly back on their heels. After the break, boxing's last great white hope of the 20th century. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. 
What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. Everyone, please welcome Coach John Calipari. We're getting beat by 18. My first game in Kentucky. They're saying, Cal's a bust. He can't coach. This is crazy. John Wall runs down the floor and makes a buzzer beater. Yep. You remember that, John? That's my first game win I ever made. Remember you said you never seen me do that. Ladies and gentlemen, DeMarcus Boogie Cousins. I called Boogie. I'm like, yo, bro, I'm about to commit to Duke. And I hung up on him. <laughs> bro, I'm talking about, do you want to tell me how many times he called me all type of names? Bro, you really sold me out. You doing this. <laughs> <laughs> bro, I was sick. I remember that like yesterday, man. Love you, John Wall. Thanks, Coach. Love you, too. You made me everything I am today. Nah, you made me. You made me. I love it. Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. It wasn't even supposed to be That's my, my game. <laughs> At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Professional basketball was and continues to be one of the great racial dramas in American popular culture. But, and I've said this before, no sporting event is fueled by the passions of racial identity more than a big time boxing match. And one of the most revealing, and I'm going to say troubling, sports spectacles of the 1980s, it was a boxing match. It took place in the Caesars Palace parking lot in June of 1982. When Larry Holmes, who is black, fought Jerry Cooney, who is white, for the heavyweight championship of the world. And it turned out to be heavyweight boxing's last big black versus white contest in the 20th century. And it's the last boxing story I'm going to tell you in this course. So savor it. Okay, Larry Holmes, who, again, is African-American. He was the heavyweight champion. And Holmes was a great Champion. He was a, a, a big man with tremendous skill. He had fast hands that delivered a, a hard, heavy punch. And when he fought Jerry Cooney in 1982, his record was 39 and 0, undefeated. Jerry Cooney was the challenger. Cooney was white. He was an Irish American from New York who rose to fame for two main reasons. Well, first, like Larry Holmes, Jerry Cooney was a powerful puncher. He ended many of his fights with knockouts. The second reason for his fame, and there are just no two ways about this, Jerry Cooney was very popular because he was white. After decades of heavyweight boxing being dominated by black fighters, Sonny Liston, Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, and now Larry Holmes, here was a white possibility. Here was a great white hope. The Larry Holmes-Jerry Cooney fight took place in June of 1982. And in a very interesting coincidence, there was a blockbuster movie that summer, Rocky III. And so now let's go back to Rocky. 
The first two Rocky movies, Rocky and Rocky II, they are films in which a white Italian-American boxer, Rocky Balboa, he fights a brash, talkative, black heavyweight champion named Apollo Creed. Rocky is a heavy underdog in the first film, and he loses in a split decision. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert, I guess. I'm guessing most of you have seen it. In the first sequel, Rocky II, Rocky wins the big fight when he knocks out Apollo Creed in one of the most implausible boxing scenes ever filmed. These were both very popular movies. The first Rocky won the Academy Award, as I told you. But as I also told you, the Rocky movies are more than just sports movies. These are movies about race and American history. Though Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed are fictional characters, these fighters are clearly supposed to represent real people. Apollo Creed is Muhammad Ali. He's brash. He's cocky. He's black. That's who Apollo Creed is supposed to remind us of, the great but controversial black fighter Muhammad Ali. Rocky Balboa is a combination of fighters, but first and foremost, he's clearly supposed to evoke the memory of Rocky Marciano. I mean, he has the exact same name. Rocky Marciano was the last white American to be heavyweight champion. Rocky Marciano was 49-0 and over his career. He was the heavyweight champion from 1952 to 1956. And he never lost a professional bout. In fact, he's the only heavyweight champion to ever end his career undefeated. And when Muhammad Ali was dominating the boxing spotlight in the 60s and 70s, there were always people out there who said, yeah, well, he wouldn't beat Rocky Marciano. If only there was a time machine where we could somehow transport Rocky Marciano into the future so he could do battle with Muhammad Ali. Well, that time machine is called Hollywood, and we get that fight, Rocky Marciano versus Muhammad Ali, in the first two Rocky films. And so the way that I read the Rocky movies is this. Rocky is white America's revenge fantasy against Muhammad Ali. Rocky Balboa, this working class, humble Italian-American who sounds like and resembles Rocky Marciano, he takes the title and shuts the mouth of the brash black fighter, Apollo Creed, who is really Muhammad Ali. Listen to this. When Rocky II came out in 1979, the Chicago film critic, Roger Ebert, he sat down with the real Muhammad Ali and they watched the film together. And when the film was over, when the white fighter Rocky had defeated the black fighter, the Ali-like Apollo Creed, Here's what Muhammad Ali said about the film. It's both boastful. I mean, it's Muhammad Ali after all. And it's very interesting. Ali said this. For the black man to come out superior would be against America's teachings. I have been so great in boxing. They had to create an image like Rocky, a white image on the screen to counteract my image in the ring. America has to have its white images no matter where it gets them. Jesus, Wonder Woman, Tarzan, and now Rocky. Wow. Jesus, Wonder Woman, Tarzan, and Rocky. Uh, Ali is saying great white hopes, all of them. 
1982 Larry Holmes-Jerry Cooney fight, it took place just three weeks after the summer premiere of Rocky III, when Rocky Balboa fights an even more brash and an even more menacing black fighter named Clubber Lang, a, a role brilliantly played by Mr. T. And fight promoters linked Jerry Cooney with Rocky Balboa that summer. These two white fighters, one real and one fictional, they were on the cover of Time magazine just weeks before the fight. Two great white hopes on the cover of Time. You know, even though Larry Holmes was the champion, undefeated, 39-0, and 0, all of the publicity revolved around Jerry Cooney, the white challenger. Just in case the general public missed the message of what this sporting event was all about, the fight's promoter, Don King, he spelled it out plain. He said, this is a black and white fight. Larry Holmes got so tired of all this great white hope talk, he snapped at a press conference and he called Jerry Cooney the great white hoax. The fight took place in Las Vegas on June 11th, 1982, in front of 32,000 spectators and millions more watching on pay-per-view. I, I was one of them. Here are some very interesting facts from that night. Very interesting fact number one. Tensions before this fight were so high that the Las Vegas Police Department ringed the roof of the arena with snipers. White supremacist groups had announced they would shoot Larry Holmes if he won the fight. Black militant organizations said they would be armed and in attendance in case Larry Holmes was attacked. Oh boy, starting to sound a little bit like Johnson versus Jeffries in 1910. Very interesting fact number two. Jerry Cooney's dressing room had been equipped with an outside phone line so he could receive a call from President Ronald Reagan if he won. There was no such phone line put in the dressing room of Larry Holmes. Think about that. The president wanted to congratulate the white fighter if he won. He had no interest in congratulating the black fighter. Very interesting fact number three. Once both fighters were in the ring, the ring announcer introduced Larry Holmes, the champion, first. Now, hold on. It is a boxing tradition that the champion be introduced last. The champ is always introduced last. But for some reason, on this night, Jerry Cooney was given that honor. I cannot remember this happening before or since that fight. Jerry Cooney received a much louder ovation. It was definitely a pro-Cooney crowd. The two fighters came together for the instructions, and when the referee was done speaking, they touched gloves, and Larry Holmes, just despite all the racial stuff swirling around this bout, he said, let's have a good fight. And it was a good fight. Larry Holmes knocked Cooney down in the second round with a quick one-two combination, that is jab-cross. But Cooney made it out of that round, and he fought what many consider to be the best fight of his career. In between the middle rounds to inspire his fighter, Jerry Cooney's trainer shouted at him, America needs you. I suppose that's very interesting fact number four, because I think what he was really saying was, white America needs you. 
Well, alas, in the end, Larry Holmes was too good. Larry Holmes was both a skilled boxer and a slugger. Jerry Cooney, it turned out, was really just a slugger. And but by the 12th round, Cooney was so tired, he had trouble keeping his punches up, and he hit Larry Holmes square in the groin on two different occasions. Twice, Larry Holmes doubled over in pain, and points were deducted from Cooney's score. I I will never forget it. After one of these punches, there was a break in the action so Holmes could recover. And his trainer reached into Holmes's shorts with two hands and he vigorously massaged his fighter's genitals. I was 13 years old and watching it on pay-per-view. And I, I tell you, seeing Larry Holmes's trainer reach into his shorts and do that, well, I became a man that night. Finally, in the 13th round, Holmes knocked down Cooney again. Cooney stumbled to his feet, dazed and confused, and his trainers threw in the towel. They stopped the fight. Holmes was the winner and still champion. Look, Jerry Cooney was a decent fighter. He wasn't a hoax. But so much of the attention and support that came his way was due to hope and hype. White hope and white hype. That's all for now. Next time on the Untold History of Sports in America, presented by One Day University, Air Jordan. School of Humans. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.